The process of government funding is a complicated topic for even the most knowledgeable analysts and policymakers. However, understanding how it touches every aspect of military life will shape a leader's perspective on the many challenges in the force today. Leaders must be willing to hear the needs of the people in front of them and know how and when to connect their presenting concerns to larger, more systemic issues, something not possible without following the money. Some concerns exist today as direct consequences of financial decisions made decades prior. Maintaining awareness of the process and systems associated with the defense budget helps leaders perform better today and prepare for better decisions tomorrow. It may even prevent them from repeating some of history's prior mistakes. To help us dive into this topic, as well as understand the role Congress plays in decisions that impact the daily lives of service members and their families, I invited Hiba Abdelal, a former congressional staffer, military spouse, millennial, and advocate. You might recognize her name from the end of Chapter 4's leadership example. Let's see what she had to say about the importance of following the money. I'm Corey Weathers. You're listening to Military Culture Shift, a limited series podcast on the impact of war, money, and generational perspective on morale, retention, and leadership. Thank you so much for for joining me and being willing to have what I think is a really, really important conversation on not just your experience, but your experience of understanding how Congress and funding and everything um, supports our lifestyle and um, just makes the whole thing run. So thank you for joining me. Sure. Thanks for having me, Corey. I'm really excited to have this conversation. I feel really fortunate that I got to be a part of the discussions that helped inform the book. And I agree with you. Um, this is a really critical part. I know you think about Congress and most people don't want to talk about that, right? Like our approval rating, I mean, family and friends jumped ship a long time ago. So <laughs> I think, you know, talking about Congress is definitely not the most fun conversation, but when it comes to being a military family or understanding the military and military culture, um, we really can't do that without understanding the role that Congress plays. Uh, so yes, I'm, I'm very eager um, for, for others to come to have that same understanding. So thanks for letting me be a small part of it. Well, and I was one of those. So why don't you share Heba a little bit of your story and your background, um, both as a spouse, but also your career um, as you were on staff in Congress, share a little bit of, of that experience. Sure. So um, as many people who probably have heard me sp speak before uh, will know, I actually didn't become a military spouse until 2018. I was 29 years old. But before that, I I did the unimaginable, right? I moved to Washington, D.C. without a job. I was 22 years old. I thought I was invincible. I still didn't know what I didn't know. And so I thought at the time, this is the best idea, you know, I could have. I'm going to go fix the government and go do all these big things. Um, and I got to, I did get to do a little bit of that. But, but what I, you know, where I ultimately found myself is in an internship in Senator John Bozeman's office, um, still sitting U.S. Senator from the state of Arkansas, who's my home state senator. And what I realized 
um, is that there was this, you know, very present conversation at the time. So this was about 2012. I really moved into his legislative office about 2014. And that was when uh, there was, and people will remember this because all over the national news, right? There was this very big conversation about wait lists at the Department of Veterans Affairs in Arizona, right? Arizona was the first state that really broke out. And, and I wanted to know why. I wanted to know why and how does it happen? Even as a 24, 25 year old, I was very curious, right? How is it possible that, you know, the men and women who'd served our nation in uniform um, after the fact, we were unable to care for them? Was it a money problem? Was it a staffing problem? Was it a mix of both of the things? It was a mix of a lot of things, right? And so that just really piqued my curiosity for the military community and what had started as really working a lot in the veterans affairs space kind of morphed into also working a lot on the active duty space, right? Or, you know, with um, currently serving military members and their families. And so I spent a lot of time, obviously, really um, learning a lot about the Department of Defense and the VA and how they work and how they work together or don't work together. Um, and then how Congress uh, supports those efforts, right, financially through the appropriations process or um, through the National Defense Authorization Act, right, by um, authorizing certain activities, then moved on, um, again, became a military spouse. You know, in 2018, I was very, very lucky. We found out we were going to Colorado Springs, the Air Force Academy. Um, fortunately, fortunately, and this is really by the grace of God, Senator Cory Gardner had a position open there that was being vacated by another military spouse, an Army spouse, who was coming to Germany. And so my opportunity then became to not just replace her, um, but to even take on some additional responsibility by becoming the senator's military legislative assistant. And so then I became his primary advisor, if you will, on all things related to the military across the state of Colorado. And that meant everything from the National Guard and Reserve to active duty, you know, military, um, Air Force, Army, Navy, Joint, I mean, you know, Canadian, so sometimes international. Um, but yeah, it was really the chance of a lifetime. And it most definitely prepared me for being a military spouse more than I would realize. You know, I, I didn't I didn't realize just how much I'd learned as a civilian before becoming a military spouse until I in fact became a military spouse. And then all of a sudden, all of the stories mm -hmm. and questions that families would reach out to us about they all made sense in what way like, like for example um the not getting orders until literally like you are supposed to be departing right to to yeah. go somewhere it means you can't go house hunting you can't go you know enroll kids in schools you can't it, you know, it started in a practical, in a much more practical sense, because I myself was having to yeah. um, work through that process, right? I was now subject to those processes and those limitations. Would you um, say it was also flipped the other way too, though, that like all of this information that you understood about money and Congress and passing bills into law and, and all of the funding perspective that now you're seeing in real time where that money actually goes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it makes it much more, you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm a much better staffer now having been a military spouse 
And I'm a much better, well, I think much more equipped military spouse having been a staffer too. It went both, it absolutely went both ways. And the added benefit of that is now when military spouses reach out to me and are asking questions about, you know, I'm advocating for this or I'm advocating for X or Y, the very first question that I ask them is, okay, who owns this? Mm. Like, let's start to actually work through these challenges and figure out where, you know, and, and I know ownership is tough for the military, but like, where are these decisions being made about where mental health dollars are being spent and where, you know, um, PCS dollars, right, are being spent and where, 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 whether it's education or childcare or housing, I mean, it just that's like the process that's ingrained in my brain, you know, having had the congressional staff experience. And so I, yes, I absolutely think that that went both ways. Um, but it also, I will say, and again, friends and family just understand. Um, I understand too, the challenge that, that Congress Mm -hmm. sits in, right? Because there's a finite amount of money And Congress really relies on the Department of Defense and on the administration, right? In every annual budget cycle, in the president's budget, when it's released in in February, right? Or for the last few years, we've been seeing that a little bit later in in the spring. But Congress relies on that information to make financial decisions on behalf of the department. And this is really where I think ownership and responsibility for some of the challenges that we've seen languish for decades now, this is where some of that ownership and responsibility has to come into place. Absolutely, Congress owns, right, the power of the purse, the responsibility of appropriating funding to support our military members, their mission, and their families, right, every single year. This is important. Mm -hmm. It's important to understand that you know, the resources that might be available to a family stateside in the event of a government shutdown, those resources are not available to your overseas families. And I think that um, very few families and leaders understand what we're experiencing in our daily life and how that um, how that trickles down from these funding questions. For example, we spent Thanksgiving with another military family. We had um, a spouse who's going through deployment with her toddlers there and another young couple, young Gen Z couple with a baby that was there. And she was even saying like when there was, we were on the verge of a government shutdown, she was at the pharmacy trying to get a prescription for the baby. Um, and it was just for amoxicillin, which I think was also, it was, there was a shortage of it too. But the point was, is that the pharmacist said they didn't know if they could fulfill this prescription because the government might shut down tomorrow. And she even said, I didn't even understand, like, what does a government shutdown have to do with getting my baby's prescription, right? And that was the first time I had even heard something like that. But it's an example of, we often don't realize how all of this ties together and the importance of understanding and paying attention to what's happening in Congress and how do we have funding for things like um, a family org day, a military ball, um, commissaries. Like it is very easy, I think, for families to come in with the promised provision that they feel like they've been promised to have, everything from housing to medical benefits, VA benefits, all of that, come in with that promised provision 
And then when it's not happening or when there's a, a struggle with that, where does that money actually come from? There's a lack of understanding from the bottom up, but also like you're saying, there is a lack of communication and clarity from the top down, I think too, is what I'm hearing from you. Oh, absolutely. And there's a lack of, I think, you know, it goes up and down both chains, right? To use a very typical military, you know, some military terminology, it goes up and down both chains where, um, and, and that communication is both from the department to military families and up and from um, Congress to military families and up. And honestly, the brokenness or where there's that huge gap is where military families may not necessarily realize exactly what you just said, Corey, which is the conversation that's happening between Congress and the Department of Defense. It does impact you. Yeah. And, you know, that's actually an issue that, you know, across society, we have had a lot, right? I mean, it's really incredible. If if there is anyone out there who thinks that what Congress does or does not do, or, you know, what have, yeah, anything that Congress does or not, does not do doesn't affect you, I would ask you to, I mean, do you drive a car? Are you in school? Are you a parent, right? Are you an educator? Are you a medical provider? You know, I could list a whole, I mean, there are very few people in this world and very few people in the United States of America who are not impacted by the decisions that are made by the United States Congress. Um, and either that's by regulation, by funding, you know, whatever, whatever means that that is, um, Congress does have a role in many cases and in many instances of, of supporting certain things or being involved in certain things and having certain requirements that have to be met even for funding, right? Education is probably one of the most typical areas where you see that, where states have to meet certain requirements in order to access federal funds for certain programs. So um, yes, our lives as military families are more so impacted by decisions made at the federal level, whether it's within the Department of Defense or the United States Congress. Well, and let's talk about when you came in. You said you came in 2018. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Unbelievable. You were on the tail end of these this two decades of global conflict, what was it like? What was the climate like? I know you were um it's interesting that your first assignment was out in Colorado. That was our first assignment 10 years earlier. So we would have been 2008 at the time. So what was the climate for you coming into the military when you came in? Was it um a warm community what were your expectations what would what did you actually experience share a little bit about that oh i'd say it was unbelievably warm i mean it was almost like you became part of a club very quickly there was a camaraderie that was just very quickly established when you said i'm an active you know i'm an active duty military spouse there was just something um i don't know really quite how to describe it uh people responded to you differently. People maybe reacted to you differently. Um, it was not too dissimilar from when you would tell people, oh, I'm a congressional staffer and I'm a military spouse. And it would just, you know, invite lots of questions about, oh my gosh, how do you do that? You know, what's that like, you know, X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, well, I've been a staffer a lot longer than I've been a military spouse. That's still the case now, but but yeah, it was a very welcoming, very warm um, community and something that I um, still continue to learn every single day about our community is that 
we are very persistent Mm -hmm. and that is really, it's really critical. It amazes me, um, just how many military spouses and members, but really their spouses that I've met that, um, are just, they would make fantastic staffers. They'd make fantastic elected officials. (laughs) I think so too. Um, They're problem solvers to their core. So I think anybody who's had any experience with this lifestyle on the inside and have had to sacrifice something, whether it's time with your spouse, um, moving, whatever, um, when you come across the people, the people are life-changing and you know, doing the research, I mean, I knew what I had heard and what I had experienced from the Afghanistan exit, but when you see the community come together and do the right thing, um, the right thing for themselves, but the right thing for humanity and the person in front of them, regardless of, of other decisions that are being made, that is a true testament of what this community stands for and what we all share in those values of doing the right thing for the sake of others. Um, when you've experienced something like that, everything in you wants to serve this community, take care of each other, see it succeed. Do we want to all be at war in order to experience that? No, but I think that when you experience what I think America is capable of experiencing when you have shared values for a common purpose and the care for your neighbor, um, the way that our community has it, you want to fight for it and you want to protect it and you want to make sure that it stays as it is from that angle. And then when you see the the struggles of mold and housing, or you see the struggles um, that we talked about earlier, where there is a disconnect, a disconnect of information or, or messaging, um, it's, it leaves you a little bit confused. It leaves you a little bit frustrated when you want to be protective of the community and what people need and what they deserve. And at the same time, your own institution that provides this lifestyle for you, you know, could be better. But I think it'd be really helpful if you could give like a high level, like what is the NDAA? Why is that important to military service members and families? Why should they be paying attention to that in the first place when there's talk about that every year? So that's a great question. And this is something that I, if anyone has ever heard me speak in any setting, I talk a lot about this upfront. The National Defense Authorization Act or the NDAA is the annual policy bill that authorizes the activities and functions undertaken by the Department of Defense to include anything that impacts military families, military members. So uh, pilot programs for military spouse employment, uh, provisions on childcare, right to address childcare or housing, whatever the case might be, that is the piece of legislation where that authorizing language, right, that legalizing language, codifying language is found. And what's even more so important, Corey, to know is that the NDAA is one of the very few, and I mean few, like maybe on, you know, if you count the appropriations bills, 12 of them, which we've never, we haven't passed the 12 of them individually, right, in many, many years, Um, But if you count the 12 appropriations bills and the NDAA, those are the 13 things that Congress acts on in a given year, right? Like NDAA passes every single year. And I think we're going on our 63rd annual passage of that bill. So it is one of the few pieces of legislation that passes with consistency every single year. And that means every single year we have the chance, collectively, have the chance to um, try out or, you know, advance 
military family policy issues. So that's why it's important. It falls under the jurisdiction of the House and the Senate Armed Services Committees. So those are the members that are uh, tasked with drafting the bill, uh, you know, writing up the the chairman's mark of the bill, and then ultimately helping conference the bill when it's time for the House and the Senate to reconcile any differences in their respective pieces of legislation. So that's the NDAA. You know, when you look up how many um, bills actually are passed into law, it's very few, which is kind of discouraging, but then you realize everybody has a neat idea and not everybody's idea can be turned into a law. So uh, maybe I'm grateful for that. But when you say it's the one or it's the several bills that every year has to be passed consistently. That That is a significant thing, that when you see how much work goes into passing a bill into law, but everybody remembers the schoolhouse rock, I'm a, you know, I'm a bill, and how hard it is to get across Capitol Hill, like all of that. Um, so when you understand that this bill becomes law every year, and that's why we face things like a government shutdown as they're trying to deliberate and figure out how to come to some consensus in order to turn that into law, it is a significant um, process, but it's an impressive process, but it's also encouraging that it does happen compared to all the things that maybe don't. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing that's really unique about the NDAA is even though it's not the actual money, right, it's not the funding. The unique thing is, is the NDAA is what gives the Department of Defense direction and guidance on what they can spend money on and possibly how much, up to how much money they can spend on that thing or on that function or on that project or that activity. And so, um, you know, that's a, the NDA is the really important, you know, the giving permission, right, or the directing to do certain things. That's a really important aspect of it. So we direct, right, like when Congress passes NDA, there will be directive language in there that will say, oh, the department shall do you know, and then you get into the debate of may and shall and all that kind of good stuff, because um, words are very important in legislation, um, as we all know and can attest to. And then uh, then comes, you know, the funding aspect of it. So there are times and yes, there have absolutely been instances in which Congress will pass language in NDAA that will say, OK, we would like, you know, to understand the feasibility of doing this. Right. And the, the response, the expected response from the department is some kind of briefing or report or what have you on that particular issue. Um, in other instances, right, Congress would pass authorizing language to say, OK, you shall reimburse military spouses for um, any costs incurred up to $1,000 per PCS, right, um, mm. for your occupational license or certification, right? So... Uh, Congress passed that authorizing language, but guess what? We didn't give the Department of Defense any money in the appropriations bill. So any reimbursement that the department or the services undertake, the respective services undertake for military spouses who seek out that reimbursement, that is from the department's funds. That is not a funded activity, even though it's an authorized one. Interesting, which means that they can, but they don't have to because yeah. they don't have the funding for it. It's an unfunded mandate. So they can, they are permitted to authorize. They're not required, required. to. Talk about that, Heba. Every, I mean, like I'm sitting here going, wait a minute, what? Like, so what does that yeah. mean? How do you function with that kind of instruction or lack thereof? It it basically leaves a lot of, it leaves a lot of the implementation to the department's discretion. 
Um, and that's where we actually see a lot of, I think, these quality of life concerns or challenges have have kind of come to the surface right now, where Congress has given a great deal of deference um, to the Department of Defense to kind of come to their own respective ways of addressing some of these challenges, right, that are in line with their, you know, their own service or the, within the organization, um, but without necessarily a whole lot of like, you know, requirements on the implementation side. Something that we hear Congress right now talking a lot about in the context of both NDAA, but this House Armed Services Committee's quality of life panel is okay, how do we, when when Congress passes, you know, or authorizes some of these programs or when the Department of Defense, right, expands certain programs like um, the child care FSA, flexible spending accounts, right, that are currently open season, everyone should be applying. Um, but when when the department does that or when Congress passes certain things, how do we know, like, how are we actually engaging military members and military families to figure out what's working and what isn't working. Mm -hmm. Right. And how do we, I mean, I don't know if most people know this, every service branch actually defines quality of life differently. Mm. There's not actually even a standard definition of what that means in the department of the army quality of life includes PCSs in the department of the Navy. They actually call it quality of service. Mm. and not necessarily quality of life. So there's already, you know, this, we need to kind of set a standard for, okay, what is the conversation that we're having? And then how are we going to support programs that might be needed? How much are we going to be willing to spend on those programs? And how are we going to institute some kind of feedback tool so that if a program isn't working or if DOD needs more money, right? Congress can authorize more spending and then appropriate more spending. So can we apply this to the housing situation, right? Is Does that Absolutely. apply to this? Because, um, you know, you and I had talked earlier about how when I was writing about the history and the story of, of even how the housing crisis came about, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of contributing variables, but from the, the timeline that I could see and watch, you know, here you have in the 90s, um, especially after 9-11, but it was before 9-11 that the military was plussing up and saying, we need to privatize housing. Um, they went to Congress. Congress appropriated the money to go to privatize housing into government contracts where they could build, I think it was 175,000 properties, I think is, is the number. I could be wrong on that a little bit. But the point was over the next 10 years, they were going to be building these thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of new buildings and properties for service members and their families to live in. And then, of course, 9-11 happened. And that was great because we needed to plus up our military in the first place. Good thing we already had a plan and a contract in place. But before 9-11, Congress went back to the DOD and said, okay, who is going to take ownership for um, and take responsibility for housing? Is it going to be the contractors? Is it going to be the DOD? And how will families communicate if there's an issue? And of course, the DOD's response was, we don't know, we'll get back to you. And then of course, 9-11 happened. Fast forward, everything builds up. Fast forward a little bit more, we go into budget cuts and sequestration in 2011 to 2013. So now we have Who's responsible? Is it the DOD or is it the contractors responsible for the mold crisis? Families not knowing which way to go other than DOD. 
But in order to solve an issue like this, and this is a quality of life issue, um, DOD is going to need money to either what build more housing or remedy the housing that they do have. And so how has what you just said affected the housing crisis? Are, have they given money to the DOD to fix that? Um, is it something that they're just having to do on their own without that funding? How does that play out or does it play out in this one? Yeah, so this one's a little bit different because whereas the spouse licensure reimbursement was an unfunded mandate, right? Or like an unfunded, you know, authorization. Um, the housing, the housing authorizations, I mean, Congress relies on the department's, you know, budget process, um, programming, programming and budgeting process uh, every year that comes through the president's budget request to the Hill um, in the form of justification books, which I would not recommend. I know you've been in deep in those, but I would not recommend anyone really spend a whole, you'll go cross-eyed. It's terrible to look at, but it gets pretty detailed and specific, right? About requests for certain military construction projects or remediation projects. And so uh, Congress really relies on the Department of Defense to make those needs known to the Hill. And then for the Hill to within, you know, budget limits and spending, you know, top lines and all that kind of stuff, try to figure out, right, how best to meet as many of those demands and needs as, as required. And you know, I actually have to, I kind of have to mention too, with regards to the housing uh, question, you know, just at, while we were at AUSA, um, we had Major General Eisenhower who had made a, a statement, right, about housing conditions um, and some of those challenges. And he was really attributing those to some of the disciplinary, you know, issues that I'm sure you will see across every service branch, right? I mean, the military is a cross-section of society, just as it's Capitol Hill. Mm -hmm. Um but I think the real concern with that is that the Government Accountability Office had just released a report with 31 open recommendations for OSD, so for the Office of the Secretary of Defense, DOD-wide, and then for every military department, Army, Navy, and the Air Force, uh, with regards to their requirements or their responsibilities to set better assessment, you know, timelines and um basically rules and requirements for assignment to housing and to barracks and what are the health standards for assigning military members to these you know to these units what condition you know is is minimally acceptable and what conditions are you know necessary for healthy and safe housing of our military and so I think that there's definitely a responsibility all the way around there right there's a responsibility by the Department of Defense to be forthcoming and honest about what their actual needs are. And then as, as, as in response to that, there's absolutely a responsibility by Congress to take a look at those needs and figure out how best to manage what finite resources there might be, right, to really get after some of these, um, these concerns. But I think what you're seeing right now with the housing crisis is exactly what you just said. It has gotten to such an extent and to such a level that it's out of control. You know, and now we're talking about, you know, a 10 year, a decade plus of investment that's going to be required just to try to catch up, let alone what is going to be required to bring new units online or to expand, right, healthy and safe housing um, opportunities for families, especially the ones that live on base, off base, yeah. right? So on base housing, off base housing, it's going to be a huge mess. And, and I think that's what you're seeing Congress and the Department of Defense grapple with now. 
So what I'm hearing you say is that sometimes Congress will come back and, you know, this goes back to like super elementary. And I feel like I have to say it because I had to remind myself of just the the baby steps of all this. But when it comes to who is responsible, it's really easy to keep pointing the finger, you know, like it doesn't quite end, you know, and so it can be very frustrating to be that that family member or that service member that's living in conditions that are not what you were promised are not the quality that you were promised and then go to where you think you need to, to hold that person responsible. And then they point to the next person and they point to the next person, right? Because we could say the DOD leaders were responsible, but they, if they go and say, well, we didn't have the funding to maintain it. Right. And then that, where does that come from? So it's a very complicated system to understand. And it can be really discouraging after a while, I think, um, to want to advocate and fight and, and want things to get better. So, but are you saying basically that when it comes to Congress working with the Department of Defense, especially like, let's say on quality of life issues that they may tell the DOD, hey, this is an internal issue. We're not gonna give you funding to actually better it, but you're gonna have to figure out how to better it with it with the funding you already have. Um, and that would be like your spouse licensure thing versus this over here that you've requested more money. And we see that you need more money to make that happen. And so we're actually, giving you the money to do it. I think what you'll see Congress do, Corey, on something like this is where Congress will start to become very directive um, about how they fund the department's efforts in this space. For example, it is very possible one tool that is in Congress's toolkit, so to speak, is to say, okay, look, we will all, you know, we will fully fund your housing requests, the department's housing requests, again, you know, across all services, right? Um, for, you know, for fiscal year, let's say 25, because 24, let's just not even talk about that situation right now. But for fiscal year 25, we get the president's budget, we will fund what the department has requested. We are also going to, um, provide funding, allocate funding at X amount million of dollars, right? Um, or yeah, at X amount million of dollars toward the rehabilitation of existing housing units. And by law, you know, unless you want an anti-deficiency act violation, which no one here need probably cares about what that is, but as I did. Sounds like we shouldn't but do it. No matter. <laughs> yeah. It's like anti-deficiency act is like, oh, Congress tells you to spend the money on this, but you don't spend, you spend it like outside of it's authorized and directed. Place. Okay. In the military, that's usually a really bad thing. That's a really bad thing. It okay. is not a good thing. 10 out of 10 do not recommend um, that anyone consider doing that ever. Uh, so, so Congress can go that way. Congress can also say we will fully fund your um, request for fiscal year 25, but some percentage of it must go towards. So 20% of whatever that is, right, for every military department must go toward the rehabilitation of, you know, uh, housing infrastructure on military installations, et cetera. So all of those things can happen. Another part of this, and this is kind of the, the behind the scenes sausage making that I know a lot of people you know, their eyes glaze over, right? When you start talking about it. But another element of this is what goes toward paying for a lot of those privatized housing contracts, right? RBAH. Mm -hmm. So the folks that live on base, 
don't necessarily see that because it's taken out of their paycheck right before it ever even gets to them in total. And then the people who live off base, right, are having a hard time kind of finding, right, that quality housing that meets their needs, but also fits within, you know, their their BAH allowance, what the, whatever the case might be. So there are all sorts of issues there, too, about the calculation of BH and what that means. And several years ago, the Department of Defense, actually, is who reduced what the coverage was, what the allotted or authorized coverage would be for BAH from 100% to 95%. Well, now you're seeing, you know, Congressman Don Bacon actually shared in a, in a re- very recent news article, I think it was just last week, as a matter of fact, or maybe even just before Thanksgiving, but to restore that 1% coverage for the basic allowance for housing would cost $225 million mm. per percentage point. Wow. So now you're talking really, right? We're talking really significant buckets to do just one very tiny 1%, 1% of what is actually going to be required as far as an investment in getting after the housing crisis. So I think if anything, you know, what I would encourage military members and military families to continue doing is absolutely continue engaging whoever the housing, you know, officials are on base, letting them know of your concerns, sharing those problems or challenges. If you're having trouble, right, getting, you know, um, maintenance readily restored, et cetera, et cetera. And then if you're not getting a response from them, elevate it. Yeah. Then go to your member of Congress, right, and say, hey, look, I have been trying. I sent emails on X, Y, or Z days. I even went by on X, Y, or Z days, right? Whatever documentation you might have of, of, you know, your efforts and share that with your member of Congress. Be like, I don't really know who to reach out to next. um, And I'm having trouble, you know, with this issue. And members of Congress and congressional offices are usually pretty... Um, you know, they're pretty successful, at least helping, you know, shake answers loose. Uh, When member offices, when congressional offices get involved, and this happened to me more times than I can count, just calling, sometimes calling over to the installation or calling over to, you know, um, the office of, you know, the congressional liaison office in DOD and saying, hey, you know, we're hearing from a lot of constituents and um, you know, in North Central Arkansas, we're hearing from a lot of constituents in Colorado's fifth district about how they're having a hard time at Fort Carson, mm-hmm. you know, getting response. And I'm not alleging that anything happened there. I'm using that as an example, right? Or we're having trouble at Peterson or wherever the case might be. Um, could you check in on this and and help us get a status update for what their housing office looks like? Do they, you know, is there a staffing issue? What's the case here? Younger generations now are so much more comfortable reaching out to a congressman or representative instead of going through the chain of command. And that frustrates a lot of the older generations who are like, hey, you're supposed to go through the chain of command before you go, you know, to the garrison commander or going, you know, all the way to Congress or whatever. So and there's valid points to both sides, because I think for the longest time, our culture was if you went through the chain of command, sometimes things weren't getting raised. um, They weren't getting to the right people or um, information was not circulated up when there were pretty big concerns. And so how would you encourage people to approach their um, representative's office with any problems that they have? Absolutely a fantastic question. So in the military community, I have learned that what Congress or congressional offices call casework, like for an individual, you know, status update or status check or, you know, conflict resolution or problem resolution, um, that is what the Department of Defense calls a congressional right? We call that a congressional in our community. Oh, I'm going to file a congressional. 
And usually that congressional is born of a situation where a military member or military family member has been, you know, trying to resolve some issue, housing or otherwise. Um, Maybe it's a reimbursement from DFAS. Maybe it's something with DHA, right? Like covering a certain procedure, et cetera, whatever the case might be. And they want to file this congressional because they haven't been getting answers or feel like they're not getting the right answers or whatever. Mm -hmm. Five alarm fire, right? Mm -hmm. That to Congress, to congressional office is called casework. That is not policy. Mm -hmm. So before, you know, before someone reaches out to a congressional office and says, okay, you know, here's what needs to be fixed or here's what's been going on. I think we have to be responsible stewards of that conversation and that process and be prepared to share with those offices, okay, here is everything that I've tried to do mm-hmm. through the chain of command, right? Following the process. And here's how the process like either hasn't worked or here's where it fell apart. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what to do next. That's where congressional offices can be super helpful. Because like I said, sometimes just picking up the phone and asking, right, the respective legislative liaison office, hey, have a constituent, this is what's going on. I have a privacy release form from them, you know, giving our office the authority to ask you questions about their particular case or their particular interest. And um, if you could help us get a status update on what's going on here, that would be great. That saves congressional office from writing a letter that saves, you know, some instances there still has to be a letter written, that's fine. But it saves, you know, it saves a lot of heartache for trying to write policy to address a singular issue. Mm-hmm. And Congress is, can't be in the business of doing that. Neither can the department. This is actually something that we share, right? Yeah. Policies, programs, initiatives, directives, um, all of those kinds of documents, guidance, et cetera, they have to be applicable to as many people as possible. So when we're passing federal law, we're not passing federal law to address one constituent's concern. We're passing federal law because a process is broken or the system is broken in such a way that constituents are having a hard time, difficulty accessing the system or difficulty resolving concerns within that system. Um, so I'm really an, a systems advocate, you know, at heart, um, because you want to understand so clearly how that process works that it's very clear when it fa- when it falls apart whether that was just a fluke whether it's because of a systemic you know breakdown a gap somewhere or whether there is in fact a gap in policy making or lawmaking that will be necessary for congress to actually mm-hmm. undertake um through the lawmaking process to, to address. So, which is the example that I shared with you about the, you know, combat injured vet tax Mm -hmm. fairness bill, uh, where that was actually a gap that if it hadn't have been for that engagement from the community, Congress wouldn't have even known that it was a problem. Well, one of the things I think is, is fascinating is, um, you're an older millennial, as you described yourself coming in. And one Mm -hmm. one of the things I love about millennials is, you're not afraid, even though you have these great questions that you wisely help discern and help filter your words. Millennials are not afraid to challenge, especially if it's at the right time. And when something is is going on that feels wrong or is wronging, is, is hurting other people. I love the fact that millennials have shifted so much of our community um, and, and brought so much advocacy to our community. And you're an, an amazing example of that. 
And so right now the community is really struggling with um, some moral injury, feeling betrayed um, since the Afghanistan exit happened, feeling betrayed on some of these promises that the DOD, um, everything from being promised adequate housing to being promised bonuses that still haven't shown up. Um, and or just that they, I think this is something we've always struggled with, is promising a lifestyle that ends up being far more challenging than anybody could ever expect, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of hurt, uh, in some cases, betrayal, um, some moral injury, just low morale that I feel like is happening within the force right now that's leading to a lot of recruitment and retention issues. And it's really discouraging to look out there and see the DOD maybe trying to make some progress in, in some areas, but not outwardly messaging in a strong way that they're actually making progress. Going back to the silence that I was speaking of earlier. And then we have Congress that seems to be at times a circus. And so what would you say to families that are watching all of that and trying to make sense of all of it? Do you have any encouraging advice? Do you feel like um, there's there's ways that we can, I guess I've been thinking this morning, we may not be able to feel like we may not feel like we can change the system, but we we each have the opportunity to do something. I have a I have this paperweight that used to sit on my desk since I first started working on the hill. And it's, you know, just a silver block. And all it says on it is if you do the little things well, you'll do the big ones better. Mm. And so my words of encouragement for our community or really anyone who supports the military community, right? Um, and military members and senior leaders within the military, decision makers, lawmakers, whoever. I would say that every little bit of our advocacy today, every little you know step of progress that we can make toward addressing some of these issues, or at least making sure that people feel acknowledged and heard, that is advocacy and time and money well spent. And so it is, all of these things are going to take time. There is no doubt about it. I mean, we talked about housing, you know, specifically, it's going to take decades. So helping families understand transparently, here's what, here's where the issue is, issues are, here's what we are going to try to do about them. But guess what? We're going to need your help. And I think the department has done a lot of this, has, has done a lot of this uh, messaging or had more of this conversation, maybe more transparently with communities, mm -hmm. with defense communities, right? Um, asking for their help, looking for uh, more partnership opportunities with them to address things like housing and childcare. I know that, uh, you know, Congress mandated in the fiscal year 2021 NDAA and then the 2023 NDAA, these basing scorecards, right, to kind of put numbers to quality of life, um, you know, issues or, or, or kind of topics. And then, you know, to help communities understand where they can, you know, maybe increase their support for military affiliated school-aged children or increase their support for military spouse, working military spouses or military spouses interested in working um, in their states with an occupational license or certification. Um, I think the department has, has maybe had more of that open conversation with with community leaders. And I would just say we, we probably, you know, it's probably a good time to have that same open conversation with our community internally. Mm -hmm. Right. I think mm -hmm. secretary Austin has been really vocal about his taking care of our people initiative. 
I think that's been really important. But I will tell you, there were a lot of military spouses abroad who didn't see themselves reflected in some of those memos. And we're asking, well, then how does this apply to mm -hmm. us, right? Mm -hmm. And I think military spouses overseas can often feel really overlooked and forgotten about mm -hmm. because out of sight, out of mind. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, I do think that we all can play a small role. And if we all do just a little bit, those collective efforts can really make a big impact. And it's very possible that we will not see the fruits of our labor for years to come. But gosh, I certainly feel a tremendous responsibility as a military spouse um, to make sure that we don't let that work languish, right? There's military spouses who came generations before me who have created these opportunities for us as, as military spouses today to be involved and to be engaged in these conversations and discussions. And they are military spouses with big names and big personalities. And I could try to list all of them off, but I think I would definitely leave off someone and that would not be good. So what I'm saying is like, you know, we stand on the shoulders of giants. And so there are so many military members, right? Senior leaders, um, who are still involved, still engaged in these conversations, military spouses still involved, still engaged in these conversations, despite having retired, you know, some time ago. And millennials, I I will give us some credit. Mm -hmm. I will say that for the most part, millennials, we got to use social media in a way that I think for the most part has been productive. Mm -hmm effective, right? Like, okay, social media is a tool in my toolkit. If I can't get anybody to care locally, if I can't get anybody to care because I wrote a letter, which, you know, or wrote an email, mm -hmm. not a letter, mm -hmm. but an email. If I can't get anyone to care when I call my congressperson, if I can't get anyone to care this way, or I can't get anyone to care that way, we're usually pretty comfortable engaging the press. Yeah. Now I will say there are positive and effective ways to do that. And there are less positive and less effective ways to do that. But I think for the most part, what drives our generation is I'm not going to wait around for somebody to do it for me. Yes. So we want to do that. We want to be involved. We want to be a part of the solution making, but helping one another understand what's the best way to actually do that in a positive way that you know, serves the needs of your family and serves the needs of our family too, right? Without taking away from anyone else. That is the, that's the crux of where we are right now, I think. Oh, that you described that so well. And I was, as you were talking about the millennials, I think as a Gen X, we were still raised under this kind of respect for authority. I'm not saying millennials don't respect, they're just willing to challenge it more. Um, but I think Gen X still had this mindset of, I still expect leadership to just do the right thing. And so Gen X was kind of this quiet generation that was like, hey, wait a minute, like, why aren't you doing the right thing? But yet we're taught to not necessarily challenge it, to just wait it out and hope that they do the right thing. Um, and then I feel like the millennials came in and were, were teaching us something different. And I think that, that Gen X has looked at millennials going, oh my gosh, they're really doing it. Like, this is really great. <laughs> like. You know, but we're still going to sit back and watch and see how it goes. You know, that's I think think why we're the quiet generation that's like trying to be respectful of both. But really, I think we came into especially the military culture really wanting better 
family work balance. Um, and I write about this in the book, but like we wanted that, but we didn't know how to ask for it. So when millennials came on the scene and were willing to advocate for it, I think Gen X has so appreciated that. And I think you've taught us that we can, that we can escalate the conversations, that challenging conversations don't have to be scary, um, that they don't have to be disrespectful or seen as disrespectful. They can just be engaging conversations where we put it out on the table and sort it out and figure it out together. And then hopefully bridge, um, find that commonality and hopefully come alongside each other and do great things together. It's taking right. some Gen X a little bit longer to catch up, but I think overall Gen X is really appreciating that. And I also think, you know, I hope so. I mean, I think like my dad's a boomer, my mom's a Gen Xer, but I would say, you know, we want to do those things with respect. We want to challenge the conversation with, you know, we don't want to challenge authority just for the sake of challenging authority. Yeah. We want to do it because we hope that it will generate like at least some conversation and dialogue, you know, that, that we can do something with, right? Like we don't want to just do things for the sake of doing them and saying that we've done them. No, we want it to like really be purposeful and meaningful. I actually think Gen Z shares in a lot of those same traits, right? They want to know that what they're doing is going to matter. Um, millennials were maybe a little bit more willing to kind of sink some time into stuff, recognizing that it may or may not go anywhere, but gosh, we don't want to miss the opportunity, right? Yes. Like if it could be something, we don't want to miss the chance to be a part of it. And I think this is where, you know, this is where we can tap into our own community to help get after some of these, you know, I, oh my gosh, I could, we could probably talk all night and I would love that because I love talking to you, but I, I think we could probably talk all night about some of the incredible military spouses that you and I both know, right? That are go-getters. They are smart. They are resourceful. They are so stinking creative, right? Yeah. Like you need your creatives to be like, okay, well, we've never done it this way before. So let's try it. And if it doesn't work, we'll move on to the next thing, yeah. right? Like yeah. I'm not afraid of that failure to us. That's not a failure of um, that's not a failure of leadership. It's just a, a, a just didn't work, yeah, right? Like yeah. circumstances and, you know, you hear it all the time where like what's old is new again. Sometimes, you know, programs or initiatives that didn't necessarily work at some point in time, maybe the circumstances weren't right for that, but maybe they are today, Yeah, you know, and vice versa. So we need to be a little bit more flexible, I think, um, as far as like when we talk about creative solutions and creative partnerships, a little bit more flexible about how we maybe consider what military spouses can bring to the table, consider what our own community can bring to the table on some of these issues, and then how we work with communities, right, and work with Congress and work with all of these folks. But we really can't do any of that unless we're all very transparent about the conversation. So you know, to your point, that moral injury, mm -hmm. we continue to deepen that moral injury. The more we invite people into to the table and we say, okay, we want your help working on X, Y, or Z issue, but we really just need this to be a visible show of interest yes. and not necessarily an active, you know, group that will frustrate people to no end. Right. Because 
we have to fight to get into those conversations in the first place. So um, what I hear you encouraging leaders of any level to do is number one, educate yourself on, on the situation, educate yourself as much as you can on your situation or your predicament. Um, go through your chain of command, um, do what you can to advocate for yourself. And I will second that, that I feel like there's a lot of people I talk to that don't know that they should be advocating for themselves. I think we're at a place right now where um, the DOD especially has so many issues that they're trying to tackle. We're, I would say that we're not doing a great job across the board <laughs> on a lot of things. And so whether it's your medical care, your mental health care, or whatever is going on, if something's not working right, you have to advocate for yourself. You have to go have the conversation, go look for what's going wrong. Um, it's not working anymore to just kind of sit in place and hope it all works out. Like you really do need to right. chase things down, but that you've also encouraged us that we do have incredible influence to at the very least engage in conversation. Absolutely. Both of those are, I think are just, you know, they're, they're critical. They're critical to recruitment and retention efforts because our community needs to see, or, you know, prospective military members, future military members, they need to see and understand that both as a department and as a Congress, right. As, as individuals in this space, as advocates that we're going to put in the work you know, we're going to put in the work and we're going to be responsive to now these very well-known needs across our, our, the Department of Defense, right? That, yeah, these things are hard. These things are going to take time, but we are committing to putting forward the effort that it's going to take to really, you know, make a dent in any of this. And another important thing is that, yeah, we talk a lot about like leadership in the military. And we oftentimes equate that to rank or to, you know, structure as a structural thing. Um, but honestly, I really think leadership, you can exhibit leadership at every level, right. In every position, whoever you are, leadership is not a rank or a role or a position. If you're waiting to become a leader, it's yeah. not a noun, you know, it's a verb, right? Like leadership, the action, the acting of being a leader, um, that's, that's something that I, I think is really critical. And so I think as military members, as military families, as military spouses, certainly, um, as military advocates, right. Mm -hmm. Even advocating in this space as our community members advocate for us and with us alongside us, um, to the department, I think it's really critical to remember that things are only going to change if we are a part of it. We have to be a part of that tidal wave right? It has to be infectious. And we have to exhibit leadership as we do that because it's important. It's important to yeah. protect the integrity of, of military service. It is an honorable thing to serve in our nation's uniform, right? On behalf of our national defense. I was not a social studies history person. And yet once you start living your life and you realize how much your life is affected by all of these decisions, you have to understand it or or we make ourselves sometimes fools trying to like solve issues, get angry, um, not having all of the information. And I, I will never have all the information, um, but that's why I rely on conversations with people like you, Heba, to go like, what? tell me what I do not see. Like, tell me what I do not know, right? Tell me what I can do and what what is not helpful, right? Um, so Heba, thank you so much for your just your heart and your passion and your willingness to educate all sides, really, um, to be that liaison. What an amazing gift you are to our community, but also 
Um, I know to Congress too. And so thank you for your example in my life um, and for being somebody that I can reach out and and say, tell me what I don't know, because I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I thanks, Corey. But I, I have to say that that obviously, I mean, definitely goes both ways. I couldn't be more grateful for someone who I've never, writing hasn't really ever been my strongest suit. And the writing that I do know how to do best is not exactly applicable. Um, to, you know, to really the larger um, world audience. But what I'll say is I, I just appreciate that you're willing to ask tough questions. And I think that that's just so important right now, um, creating space for these conversations. It's, it, I really cannot overstate just how critical that is at this moment um, in, in society, both for for the military affiliated and for the non-military affiliated, right? Everyone uh, wants to understand and wants to help and wants to be a good steward of of whatever role it is that they can play in in creating um, a better opportunity for military service or you know just a more accessible one. And so I think the conversation that you've been having, but the conversation that you've really started with the book is. I hope um, the the setting of the table, if you will, where everyone feels comfortable coming to um, the discussion to really, you know, get their ideas out there, get your best practices out there, right? It's all hands on deck right now. So I am one of those people that have lived in that house and I have incredible health issues that I rarely speak of. I brought it up to the privatized housing. Nothing was done. I personally paid $820 out of pocket for mold testing gave it to our community forum. Nothing was done. I'm really sorry that I have to stand here and bring it up to you today, but I know that I'm not alone. Please help me hold these companies accountable. In the case where there is a child who has been affected by this, who will permanently be disabled because of this, what responsibility do you all have and do you all plan for with your for-profit businesses to make sure that those children and those families are being taken care of? Or do you expect that the government will do that for you? Sewage overflow water quality issues, rodent infestations, mold, broken air conditioned units, and sweltering heat, and others, all have been found in these facilities. Facilities that service members are expected to require and required to live in. I just want to say, I was a base commander at Ramstein and at Offutt Air Force Base. If I would have had these conditions in any of our barracks, I would have got fired. Where is the accountability at? with these barracks. Has anybody been held accountable? I don't recall the standards being this way when I got out in 2014. Something has happened. It is an issue not only of justice and dignity, but also of military readiness. When our service members are preoccupied with their health and safety, they cannot focus on their mission. The Military Culture Shift Podcast is sponsored by New Res Home Mortgages and written and produced by me, author, speaker, and military clinical consultant, Corey Weathers. It is a supplemental leadership podcast for the book, Military Culture Shift, The Impact of War, Money, and Generational Perspective on Morale, Retention, and Leadership, aimed to invite discussion in order to consider productive solutions for our nation's security and force of service members and their families. Copies of the book can be purchased on Amazon, militaryfamilybooks.com, and your other favorite retailers. More information, including graphs, data, and other resources mentioned in the book, can be found on my website, coreyweathers.com.